Welcome to the Healthcare Real Estate Advisor Podcast. I'm Libby Park, a healthcare real estate attorney with Hall Render. For today's episode of the podcast, we are going to listen in on a webinar that discusses healthcare real estate trends observed during the COVID-19 pandemic. I hope you enjoy the podcast and please feel free to contact me at lpark at hallrender.com with any follow-up questions you may have. I'd like to thank everyone for tuning into our webinar today to discuss healthcare real estate trends observed during the COVID-19 pandemic. My name is Libby Park and I'm an attorney with Hall Render, the largest healthcare focused law firm in the country and I'm based out of our Denver, Colorado office. I work primarily with the firm's real estate service line and it's my pleasure to be here with each of you over the course of the next hour for our discussion. I'd like to start today by thanking all of our healthcare workers on the front lines that are working to keep our communities safe. We appreciate the work you do each day. On the webinar today, we're joined by a distinguished panel of experts in the healthcare real estate field. John Van Santen, Lori Damon, Harry Bacallis, and Sean Janis, each of whom will introduce themselves to you in a moment. Our goal in hosting this webinar is to bring a group of professionals together to talk about best practices and industry trends affecting healthcare real estate during the current public health emergency. We will discuss topics including rent relief, fair market value, reopening considerations, and what a post-COVID-19 return to normalcy may look like. Our goal is to learn from one another and our panel and take the information back to our respective organizations. And with that, let's hear from our panelists. John, could you please start out introductions and tell us about yourself? Sure, happy to, Libby, and happy to be a part of the panel. Uh, my name is John Van Santen. I'm a managing director of Stout. Uh, Stout is a financial consulting firm that has a number of service lines, including investment banking, dispute consulting, management consulting, and valuation, of which I'm a part of. And valuation includes um, business valuation, machinery and equipment, as well as real estate valuation. Um, I'm based in our Chicago office, uh, although the firm actually has offices in 16 cities around the country, as well as some international offices too. Um, so I co-lead the real estate valuation practice for Stout, and I focus my practice on healthcare real estate, where I've been practicing for about 30 years. And we do valuations um, in the healthcare space for a variety of purposes, including start and anti-kickback compliance and, and other matters as well. Very happy to be part of the panel. Thanks, John. Lori, can you please introduce yourself? Sure. Thanks, Libby. Um, I'm Lori Damon. I lead Cushman and Wakefield's healthcare advisory practice. I have a team of roughly 300 healthcare real estate professionals who collectively manage 34 million square feet of medical office and ambulatory assets. We also provide advisory and transaction expertise for healthcare systems, physician practices, and investor owners and developers. Thanks for that, Lori. And Perry, can you please introduce yourself? Thanks, Libby. My name is Perry Bacallis. Thanks uh, again, everybody, for being on the panel your time this morning. Um, it's an honor to, to be on a panel with everyone. Um, I am a uh, healthcare real estate advisor, uh, broker here in Denver. Um, a company I work with is called Car Healthcare Realty. Um, I've been with Car for about six years. When I uh, joined Car, 
I was, uh, there was four of us in Colorado, um, and now there are over 100 men and women across the country um, representing real estate professionals. Uh, we're a tenant buyer only uh, firm. Um, so it's uh, exciting, to, exciting to watch our company grow and to be helping, helping people that help people. Thank you, Perry. And Sean, please tell us about yourself. Thanks, Libby. Um, I'd also like to thank, um, make a note to thank all the healthcare workers. Um, many of you may be on the phone as well, so we do appreciate all your efforts. My name is Sean Janis. I'm the National Director of Healthcare for Colliers International. Um, so I run our U.S. Uh, healthcare practice. I've been in business for over 20 years on both the principal and advisory side. Um, Colliers is a global organization uh, on the real estate side, full service. Uh, we do brokerage, capital markets, advisory, project management, et cetera. Uh, we actually have uh, we pride ourselves on kind of taking national best practices kind of at a healthcare level and having uh, local uh, brokers and ad advisors deliver that at a local level. So we have a healthcare fellows program, which are folks dedicated to that sort of healthcare space and are specialists. Um, and I'm looking forward to today's discussion. Thank you, Sean. And thanks everyone for those introductions and for telling us more about what you do each day. Now let's jump into our first topic of rent relief. Landlords and tenants across the U.S. are experiencing the financial ripple effect of the COVID-19 crisis, particularly as it relates to payment and collection of rent. Sean, what types of rent relief structures are landlords and tenants asking for in order to deal with the pandemic? It's interesting. Um, I think one of the unique things, and obviously I think everyone knows uh, out of the real estate asset classes, industri the industrial space has fared better than most. Uh, I think healthcare is probably uh, potentially best positioned after that currently. Uh, just to give some perspective, if anyone read the Wall Street Journal today, you look at retail tenants and SL Green, one of the largest um, owners of space in uh, New York City, their April rents uh, were less than 40, they received less than 45% of their April rents. By contrast, um, in surveys that we've been doing uh, across healthcare uh, owners across the country uh, on the landlord side, on April rents, 14 to 18% on average uh, is either tenants who have sought rent relief um, or have uh, come to some conclusions with their landlord relative to how that would be, uh, would they be held going forward. I think most importantly, it's important to communicate openly, early, and honestly uh, between landlords and tenants so that the folks are aware of what's going on. I would tell you landlords typically want to see when tenants are approaching them for potential rent relief, uh, they'll want to make sure that the tenants have pursued uh, the triple P applications with the federal government, uh, the payroll protection plan. They'll also typically want to see financials of those tenants as well so they can um, make prudent decisions and try to keep them moving forward as well. In terms of specific structures, uh, it's interesting. I think hospital and health system owners um, typically have a standard policy is what we've seen relative to how they deal with tenants. Uh, part of that is, I'm sure folks on this call know, um, you know, we have the blanket waiver of the start provisions, et cetera. But even given that, the uncertainty of what things will look like afterward had caused the hospitals and health systems to try to get to a situation where they'll treat each of those tenants 
uh, in a similar manner. So again, a standard policy. Uh, I contrast that to the investor developers who are approaching it more on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, and again, we'll work with each particular tenant given their circumstances uh, and try to work out what that relief might be. Uh, to specifically address kind of your question, Libby, in terms of what we're seeing in the marketplace currently, I think on average, it's fair to say, we'll probably in a two to three months rent relief, rent deferral um, situation for most folks. Um, how that is then dealt with from the landlord-tenant perspective changes uh, a bit in terms of how it might be structured. Uh, we've seen it uh, where those two to three months may be paid back at the end of the calendar year or paid back over the last two to three months of the calendar year. We've also seen it um, where the rent deferral has been amortized over the balance of the lease term, so they're capturing over that time. Um, and we're also seeing it where they've amortized it over just this calendar year. So if you're get two months of deferral, you would then you know, take you through, say, June, you would then you would then amortize that over the July through December period. We've also seen in, in a couple instances where they've added months to the end of the term to extend the term as well. Um, some of those examples are two-month extension for every month of deferral. So if you were to defer your rent for two months, you would add four years of term onto the back end as well. So again, those are just a few examples of what we're seeing. But again, I think most importantly, it's the tenants approaching the landlords early, honestly communicating. Um, and I think the landlords in most cases then will, will deal with the tenants, uh, may ask for certain uh, financials, as I said, triple P applications, but that's kind of what we're seeing in the marketplace. Thanks for that, Sean. And Perry, can you speak a little bit to what uh, you're seeing from the tenant perspective of what type of documentation landlords are requesting? Is it similar to the same things Sean is, is uh, speaking to here? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, Sean covered it pretty thoroughly, but um, I think one interesting um, question that I've gotten from several clients of mine is, you know, should, should you approach my landlord on this one or, or um, you know, do you want me to do that? And, um, you know, typically, you know, if, if the lease is coming up in the next 18 months, year to 18 months, I think that's an appropriate time to talk about a renewal potentially and getting free rent, you know, right up front as you're, you're renewing, obviously the, the term extends and then you get the free rent now, which is, which is helpful. Um, you know, the, my, my response to my clients when they ask me that question, who should, who should approach the landlord? It's, well, if you're going to think about a renewal and that's coming up within the next year, let, let's have that discussion together and then we'll, we'll negotiate with the landlord. I would negotiate for you. Um, but then, um, you know, if there's time left on the lease, uh, we've encouraged our clients to do exactly what Sean was saying is, you know, approach the landlord. It's personal. It's, you know, we're not just trying to leverage, you know, extra money here. It's, we can't pay this rent or we need relief here. This is what we're doing. And so I've advised our clients to go ahead and have those conversations. Um, and then if they've, if they've got a deal or, you know, some terms that they're not sure about, we're happy to advise them on. But um, that's one thing that I've just said, hey, I think it'd be good for you to have that conversation with your landlord and I can get involved if I, if I need to. Um, and so far that's been, um, I think that's, it's been pretty good. A lot of, you know, right when this, all this started happening, there was a lot of questions and uh, fear, but um, things have really kind of flatlined a little bit in terms of um, that whole, that, uh, that kind of fear-based mentality of I can't make rent. So, um, 
yeah, the things have changed uh, even in the last couple of weeks on that one. And this is Sean. I would add one other thing, which I which I found somewhat interesting is um, kind of um, piggybacking off that comment. Is, is some of the landlords um, have actually, you know, we may have approached them if their clients like it, our tenants would like us to do that. Uh, some of them have actually reached out directly to the tenants themselves. This is taking not less, less renewals and more kind of rent to flow discussions. And part of that, we believe, is is just because they don't want to they don't want to be on the hook for potential lease commissions. Um, in terms of restructuring these things, I would tell you that that our approach has been as advisors to our clients that, that we're not looking for commissions. We're trying to find the best solutions for those. We believe that you know over the long term, um, you know that would come back. So, uh, but I do I do point that out that some landlords are talking directly to the tenants rather than going through uh, some of the leasing brokers. Yep, I'd agree with that as well. Can anyone speak to, in terms of standard policies that you're seeing from healthcare systems, what exactly are, are the specifics of the terms of these policies? Um, is it kind of, does this vary by healthcare system or are you seeing consistencies nationwide with the policies that are being implemented? So Libby, if you'd like, I can jump in here. Across our portfolio, about 80% of um, of the square footage that we manage is owned by health systems or master leased by them. And by and large, the, their approach has been a short-term deferral, either 60 days or 90 days. Very few have looked beyond that. Um, all of it is structured as a deferral, and it's either um, repayable through the end of the calendar year or through the end of the year as defined by the term. A few of them have also amortized it or have tacked, on, tacked it on as additional rent at the end. In almost every case, it's structured as additional rent, and late fees and interest are waived. Thanks for that, I, uh, I would agree with Lori's comments. I would say that I mean, specifically to your other part of that question, uh, Libby, is that um, while within a particular health system, we, it's typically standardized, but across the country from health system to health system, it may be a little bit different. So we've seen each of those act independently, but typically with a standard procedure. Yeah, applied, applicable generally to everybody um, in the interest of, um, you know, out of an abundance of caution, right? Stark is, the, the blanket waiver doesn't specifically address rent deferment. And they do still typically have to be sensitive to looking like they're not incentivizing referrals. Um, I think it also just makes it administratively easier, frankly. Yeah, I agree. Thanks for those perspectives, everyone. Um, making sure that there's a, a process in place and standardized uh, documentation is, is very important as we move through the COVID crisis. And unless anyone has anything to add on to rent relief, let's move on to our next topic of discussion, fair market value. John, can you speak to uh, what you're seeing in regard to the pandemic, pandemic's effect on valuation and how are healthcare systems ass assessing fair market value currently? Sure. Well. 
you know, even under normal circumstances, it's, it's always very um, facts and circumstances specific, but uh, under current circumstances, I'd say it's even more so. Um, and, you know, as appraisers, one of the challenges that we have is that, um, you know, a lot of our analysis and our opinion is based on analysis of recent comparable transactions. And so if you're talking about a leasing arrangements, you know, under normal circumstances, if we were able to find a comparable lease of the property next door from two months ago, we might say that's probably a, a really good indication of a fair market rent for the, the space we're looking at. But obviously a lot has changed in the last two months. And so, you know, relying on that transaction that's even that recent may not necessarily be the right thing to do. Um, but then the challenge there is that there really haven't been we're early enough into this that there haven't really been transactions, recent transactions that we could point to that really show the impact of the crisis. You know, there's nothing, there's oftentimes not a lot in the way of recent comparables that we can point to that says um, that, that market rent is an indication of what rent is post or while we're into the crisis. So the, in, the, in the absence of actual transactions that we can point to, um, what we really have to do is spend a lot of time talking to participants in the market, you know, talking to the people on this panel, um, trying to understand what is it that they're seeing, what are they hearing, what kind of arrangements are they hearing about, um, whether it's rent concessions, rent relief, or, you know, for purchase and sale transactions, are they, they looking at a different cap rate now, or are they looking at underwriting it with um, a greater level of credit and collection loss? Um, you know, all those things are conversations that we're constantly having as appraisers to try and understand in the absence of, of specific transactions that we can point to, what, you know, what's going on. So, so therefore, we, you know, we might still rely to some degree on that two-month-old transaction, but now we at least have a basis for being able to make some adjustments to that to reflect the, the current state of, of what's going on. Um, but, you know, right along with that, you know, one of the questions you ask or we often are asked as appraisers is, you know, how, how – how long is that opinion good for? Um, you know, is it, is it good for a month, two months, six months? Um, you know, if you're saying fair market rent today is $20 a square foot, you know, is it going to be $20 a square foot a month from now? And I, I think with the uncertainty of today's environment, um, there's no guarantees that it's going to be the same a month from now. Um, it, it could literally change in a week, um, potentially. Um, and again, it's all going to be very facts and circumstances specific, um, but I, you know, I think it's probably good practice when you're getting a, an FMV opinion um, and there may be some delay between when the opinion's rendered and when the transaction actually closes that you might want to circle back with the appraiser um, to, to find out if there's been any material changes in that intervening period of time. Um, but those are some of the things we're, we're definitely um, seeing and, and things we're kind of we're dealing with in today's environment. Mm -hmm. Thanks for that, John. Um, in light of the, as you mentioned, the lack of recent transactions to base these valuations off of, um, and it sounds like you have a very, you know, you're keeping a pulse on the marketplace. How do you recommend that uh, clients document uh, these types of facts and, and circumstances to support the valuations? Well, so you know, typically, with a, if we're preparing an appraisal report, we would we would document those facts and circumstances um, within our report and all the different considerations we've we've taken to our analysis. You know, um, 
you know, we, we obviously would point to actual transactions, but we would also document the conversations we've had with brokers who are actively involved in leasing space or investors are actually buying uh, space and, and just document the kind of conversations that we're having. Um, so that definitely would be part and parcel of any kind of fair market value opinion that we provide. It would be included within our, our appraisal. But, um, you know, again, I think it's important to understand that things could change very rapidly, um, and I, I think it would be best practice to, to, to circle back, particularly if there's been some delay between the, when the opinion is issued and when the transaction closes. Okay. This is Sean. Thanks I might I might weigh in on in terms of valuation trends just on um, on, on some of the disparity and maybe is the best way to describe it relative to uh, cap rates. And John brought that up in terms of where where cap rates may or may not go, kind of in the future. Some of the some of the surveys uh, that we've been involved in and that we've uh, that I've seen, I think we're predicting kind of the cap rates within the healthcare sector could go up 25 to 50 basis points. On the outlier side, they're saying they could go up. 50 to 100 basis points. Over the last week, I've actually had um, other conversations uh, which are actually saying that they believe that the cap rates for healthcare properties uh, may not move much at all. And the reasons for those being that, you know, healthcare, everyone believes coming out of this will be a preferred asset class. Um, you know, some of the other ones, retail in particular, obviously hospitality, some of those stand out in terms of how they will be affected uh, by the crisis. But I think you're seeing we're getting more and more uh, questions uh, from investors who are looking to get into the space. So there may be additional supply of capital coming into the space, which then will obviously um, keep cap rates at a lower level. So it'll be interesting to see it plays out. No one has the crystal ball, but I think there's there's at least good news from a healthcare perspective. I know there's healthcare folks who are on this call um, that cap rates should not be significantly impacted, although they may they may creep up, obviously. Yeah, Sean, that, that, that is think... consistent with what we're, what, what we're hearing as well. You know, we, we work with a number of real estate investment trusts um, and other types of investors as well. And, and in general, what we're hearing is they don't anticipate cap rates changing much. Um, and in their underwriting, they may be um, forecasting greater credit and collection loss um, in, in, on sort of a short-term basis, but from an overall cap rate standpoint, they're not necessarily uh, foreseeing a, a big change there. John, this is Lori. I would agree with all of that. I think one of the other really important considerations on pricing is the quality of the asset. So I think uh, cap rates, we're not seeing much movement there on anything that's core or core plus, particularly if it has a strong health system credit. I think the more interesting um, and, and possibly more volatile sector is going to be what happens with the value add properties. Um, you know, with a lot of different physician-tenant credits, especially smaller physician-tenants, we don't yet know what the long-term financial impacts of this are going to be. And even if, um, even as elective cases start opening back up, I think it's really difficult in some cases for smaller tenants maybe to forecast what their revenue stream is going to look like and how quickly they can recover. Um, you know, their patient base and work through what what may be pent up demand. Um, so I think that's a, a really important um, segment of the industry that we're going to have to keep a close eye on. I also think that, um, you know, longer range as investors, if more capital comes into the sector, um, that that may have um, that may allow pricing to remain what it was, but it'll be interesting to see how investors who are new to the sector underwrite the risk 
I think a lot of them have been surprised that um, medical office actually saw rent relief requests. I've worked in the sector for more than 20 years and I've never seen that before. And much of that was driven by what was perceived as a government edict to shut down caseloads. So I think um, as we get a flock of, you know, or potentially get a flock of new investors to the space, it'll be interesting to see um, how those new investors look at the sector, how they underwrite it, how they come to understand potential risks that they may not have foreseen in the past. Thanks for that, Lori. Um, that's, uh, you raise an interesting point about how these considerations will be relevant as we transition into the next phase of reopening medical practices. And um, we're all likely aware that on uh, April 19th, CMS issued its recommendations for reopening healthcare facilities for non-emergent, non-COVID-19 care in certain communities. And Lori, can you speak to how healthcare clients are readying their buildings for resumption of service and what are operational considerations as practices begin to resume activities? Sure. So um, across our portfolio, 100% of our health system clients are now working through their internal planning to, um, to open up elective cases. Um, obviously, that will be phased and they will work through the requirements issued by CMS to meet, you know, to be able to safely open up. Um, hospitals and ASBs, of course, will go first and then um, because many medical office buildings have um, surgery centers in them, we're, we're preparing the buildings now. There are, of course, um, many, many considerations. 100% of our medical office buildings have remained open throughout this, but patient volumes have been um, significantly curtailed. Um, and, you know, a lot of physician staff may be, may be in there, but their patient flows are much lighter. So a couple things that we're thinking about and working through, um, in our case, all of this is directed by, the, by health systems who are the owners or master lessors of the buildings. Um, one of the considerations is just looking at the volume of people coming into the building. A number of health systems restricted visitors so that they have a patient drop-off and, and patients cannot be accompanied unless they have, you know, a, a need for, for a helper to get them physically into the building. Um, so those, um, in some cases, those restrictions will remain in place. We're looking at restricting ingress and egress to specific, um, to specific entryways so that you can carefully control the flow of patients. Um, limiting the number of patients in elevators is another one. There's still, um, there's still some discussion about screening and whether or not um, patients will be screened. In many cases, patients are going to be screened in advance um, with a phone survey, but then um, many health systems are also looking at doing some form of temperature screening. Um, at the entry, prior to the entry to the building. So those um, spaces will have to be um, set up and um, secured against inclement weather um, and staffed too. Um, lots of discussion around cleaning and making sure that they're all common areas and high touch surfaces are cleaned adequately. Um, there's, you know, everyone is concerned about making sure that buildings reopen safely. I think one of the other challenges is making sure that um, not only that, that we can document the safety initiatives that we're taking, but also that patients 
sense that they are safe, right? So the building is going to have to look and feel and feel and smell clean in order for patients to feel good resuming things like preventative care visits and and the like. Um, uh, so far, there's. Um, we are looking at some physician practices are looking at having patients check in and then wait in their cars until it's time for their appointment so that we can reduce waiting room traffic. Um, and I think in markets where that's um, accessible and parking is available, um, that'll probably end up being a popular choice. Um, so those are the those are the primary considerations. Lots of additional. Um, I would describe this as a work in progress. We're working through that with individual tenants and trying to develop very specific documents um, to guide those protocols, um, and also reminding our teams to to be flexible because the the best practices are likely to evolve over time and shift a bit as we um, as we understand better what patients need and want and um, and what works most effectively in the various settings. This is Sean. The one thing I would add, this is this is less uh, I agree with everything Lori said. I think those are those are spot on in terms of things um, that owners of medical office buildings are looking at along with extended build, building hours. Um, the other thing I was going to bring up, and this is less of a real estate issue than it is an operational issue or operational potential solution. So, for example, for ASCs where they may have a, 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 a staff 100% of their people, they're shifting those to where they're, they're actually every other day using 50% of that staff um, on Monday, 50% on Tuesday, and then rotating that. And it makes a whole, a whole bunch of sense. Uh, and the reasoning being if they do, you know, God forbid, have a positive COVID test, they would need to quarantine and self-isolate um, you know, for the 14 day period potentially. So at least then they would have the other 50% of the folks who could step in and begin working every day. So the theory being, you're obviously not gonna lose 100% of your revenue, but you could be able to keep 50% of that revenue on a limited basis moving forward. So I think those are some of the creative solutions that healthcare providers are looking at and, and ways to kind of keep the business going in a thoughtful manner. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Sean. And we're doing the same thing with the building management and engineering staff, right? Mm -hmm teams and rotating them to limit their risk of exposure. Already throughout the throughout the pandemic to date, we've staggered hours for maintenance um, and tried to schedule um, preventative maintenance or even repairs that don't have to be done immediately, try to do those when there's nobody in the suite. Um, and a lot of tenants have said that they're going to do some of their own cleaning um, you know, particularly wiping down exam rooms between patient visits just to mitigate the risk and mitigate the, um, you know, the introduction of yet another person into this space. So I do think we're going to see um, um, slower volumes of patients spaced out. That may mean that um, building operator operations hours get extended, um, but I do think we'll see that phase over time and not be the immediate um, response. It sounds like there's already a lot of movement and implementation of uh, practices and procedures to make sure that buildings are reopened in a compliant manner. And maybe this is a um, valuation question, but generally, as we progress through COVID, who do we think is going to absorb these costs um, in relation to even cleaning or screenings? Will these be 
um, pass through to tenants? Will the, um, how will the owners or landlords of, of buildings absorb these costs? I think that's a good question, Libby. I think it's going to be interesting to see. Um, I think it really depends. And in, in buildings that are owned by health systems, I think if they're being prescriptive about what's happening, um, they may agree um, or feel obligated to shoulder some of the costs. Um, I think the other issue here is the duration. Um, you know, certainly um, additional cleaning and common areas. And, you know, at, for instance, staffing a security guard in an elevator so that one person pushes the buttons and not every patient pushing buttons to whatever floor they want to go to. Um, I think there's a case to be made that those are shared expenses that benefit the entire tenant base. Um, again, I think this will require some negotiation. It requires um, being able to forecast what those costs are going to be so that um, all parties, the landlord and the tenant base, understand what those additional costs will be. And then I think wherever possible and appropriate, um, looking really hard at where other operation savings can be accomplished to offset some of these costs so that, um, you know, physician tenants and even health systems who have experienced pretty significant financial hardship are not also then upon resuming cases um, facing significant additional capital outlay as they try to ramp their businesses up. John, I don't know what your thoughts are on that one, but that's my off-the-cuff hunch. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would, I would agree with you. It's really, it's really hard to say for sure, um, but I, I think your off-the-cuff hunch is probably um, I mean, similar to what I would think as well. So we'll just have to wait and see how it all plays out. And how are we seeing, um, which this can be open to anyone, but how are we seeing the transition for reopening um, in regard to short-term leases that have been put into place to deal with the COVID-19 crisis? For example, repurposing ASCs or potential leasing of hotel spaces. How are parties thinking of transitioning out of those short-term arrangements? So I haven't seen any movement on those. I think one of the remaining questions um, is really understanding or trying to feel like you have a good grasp on what um, potential additional capacity is going to be needed. Um, and so a lot of health systems really expanded their bed capacity and especially their IU, ICU bed capacity. And some of them did, you know, took down short-term leases and ASCs in order to have that on the shelf. Um, I could envision that if they think they have enough capacity in the event of a second wave or an unpredictable um, reopening where they can't accurately forecast the number of potential cases that they may allow some of those ASCs to either be sublet back to their original users um, so that they can resume caseloads there. Some of them may just leave those short-term leases in place. I mean, most of those leases, that, at least the ones that I saw, were only three or four months in duration. Um, and, you know, the health systems who took them over took complete control of them. So there would be no switching back between hospital use and non-hospital use or regular surgery center use. 
So some of those may just, it, it may just be easiest to leave them in place in the event of needed capacity. Um, I haven't, I haven't seen any directives on that one yet, but I'm sure that that will get figured out in the coming weeks. Yeah, I would, I would agree with Lori. I think Lori, that was well put. It's just, this is kind of one of the areas of which so many of these are, which is uh, we have to see how things play out a bit, obviously. Um, there's two components to that. There's those that kind of health systems are controlling, as you mentioned, the ASCs and that, and then you kind of have the whole other world of um, what municipalities are doing, whether it be um, a place here in Chicago, which were converted to, to hospital beds or the Javits Center in New York, and there's examples around the country as well. Um, so some of those will be driven by municipalities in terms of what kind of that excess overflow capacity might look like. Some, same thing with as it relates to um, the leasing of hotels, which are obviously hard hit. City of Chicago has, has leased hotels on two fronts. One, to actually house those who have tested positive uh, for COVID-19, but are not in serious condition, but just need to be isolated uh, and not being in intensive care. And then also other hotels, which are effectively have been leased so that worker, healthcare workers uh, can utilize those facilities to um, isolate from their families, as hard as that may be, as a way to, to not infect those families as well. So uh, you have the two components, what are hospitals and health systems doing on that front and what are the municipalities doing? But I do think it's a, it's a big swag in terms of how things uh, continue to progress over the next you know weeks and months. Mm -hmm. And that's a common theme that we're all in this together and we're all uh, taking the pulse of how things will progress over the coming weeks and months. So I think having discussions like we are today so that we can share knowledge uh, amongst each other and uh, best practices for handling these things moving forward is important. Thanks for those perspectives. So let's shift to our um, an extension of our considerations for reopening topics. Um, Perry, could you speak a little bit on the tenant side of what the most pressing issues are re relating to the return to norm normalcy post-COVID? And in yeah. particular, what are physician practices thinking through? Yeah, it's a great question. So two, two things come to mind there. Um, one is the um, insurance reimbursement lag coming. Um, I feel like there's been a lot of practices that have said, yeah, we're good now, but what is May going to look like in June? And if that, you know, some of those things start to dry up because our, our traffic has been at a fraction of when it was the last couple of months. Um, so there's that aspect. Hopefully most of those practices have the, the rent relief in place. Um, but really that's just going to give them an idea of, okay, those practices that have kind of that, that, um, it's a nest egg or savings saved up so they can kind of weather the storm. Um, I think that's going to be one of the most interesting things to see. Um, but I think going forward, once we kind of get over that hump, um, and obviously, obviously going back to speaking of that, um, the telehealth, um, you know, that those insurance companies are reimbursing those visits at 100%. So, um, like a regular office visit. So, does that continue? Uh, does that go back to where it was before all this uh, started happening? Is there, you know, they're gonna reimburse it at 50% going forward? Um, how is that going to affect practices? And um, I think the biggest concern um, or question really that I, most of my clients are having is, <clears throat> what's my space gonna look like going forward? <clears throat> um, the physical space itself, um, you know, I've got, 
you know, which goes right back into telehealth is, is something like that, something we're going to be able to do. We're going to be able to do follow-up visits where they don't even have to come back into the office. Um, what is my waiting room going to look like? Are we going to have folks wait in their car and then come in right as their appointment comes in? Are our waiting rooms going to get bigger? Are they going to get smaller? Um, is the six feet uh, distancing a new normal now? So is that going to impact our space? Um, I've got multiple clients right now. <clears throat> We're planning on, okay, what's your space going to look like in the future, a relocation or renewal? Um, they don't know what, how to plan their space out. How is it going to change? And I, I, I will be interested to see kind of the, the new future space, um, knowing that, hey, this, you know, this isn't the, hopefully this is the last time something this, this large of a pandemic will, will, will be around. But in the future, what can be more, more prepared for? How can our spaces be laid out for the new normal? Um, and I, you know, I don't really have an answer to that, but that's something that I've got several clients going, I wish I knew uh, how the space is going to lay out. So um, that's the main thing I'm, I'm seeing and, and trying to advise my clients the best I can. Um, I would be curious to know what other folks are seeing out there uh, with how physical spaces are going to change. And, and Perry, you bring up some great points to Sean uh, in, in terms of, I think that's, uh, the, the best news is, is that this is what people are, are thinking about here over the course of, I'll call it the last week, whereas before it was, you know, what am I doing the next minute, the next hour from a, from a health perspective to deliver health care? I think it's a positive perspective that we're starting to think about um, getting back to normalcy and what are some of those implications? Let's get out in front of this beforehand. Uh, obviously testing, uh, which is all over the news, uh, will be a key component of that. Uh, and, and you're right, Perry, it's, things have, um, people are, it's conjecture at this point. I mean, obviously some of the things that you touched on that Lori touched on earlier, which I thought were great points in terms of single entrance and exits, um, you know, one-way thoroughfares through the space, you know, checking in online, getting rid of the front desk um, in terms of check-ins, you know, the waiting rooms that can be people wait in their cars and then kind of get texted and say, okay, it's your turn to come in versus having larger waiting rooms that may be congregating and all those types of things. The other interesting thing you mentioned, which is, is kind of that telehealth component, and I think that's, from my perspective, will be one of the more interesting uh, components that will, will flush itself out. You know, in, the, in our space, in the healthcare real estate, the healthcare space has been talked about for a long time. Um, it's really been a slow adoption of telehealth, telemedicine, and uh, I would tell you primarily uh, two reasons. One is, as you touched on, um, reimbursements um, and the fact that they weren't being reimbursed, um, and then secondly, the fact that they've, re they've relaxed the kind of um, interstate guidelines as it relates to that as well. So it will be interesting to see what happens after this and how that changes. Some of those discussions have been, you know, we may need dedicated space within our offices that we're going to use for telehealth, that, that providers, whether it's nurse practitioners or physicians, will be kind of doing the telehealth uh, within a certain component of the office. Um, so I think it'll be interesting. I think originally people were thinking, boy, could this, is this going to shrink the space that's needed? Will this grow the space that's needed? And I think it is. It's, it's, a, it's a big swag at this point. Uh, but I think all of those things, the positive news again, is that they're on the table and people are starting to talk through it. And, and what are those solutions and what will that look like? I also think it'll be interesting to see, particularly with respect to telehealth, with how well it really works. Um, you know, there's been a lot of a lot of headlines lately about um, patients 
who have experienced really serious health issues who've been afraid to go to the ED. So the incidence of heart rate was down, but not really. People were just having their heart attacks at home and the same with stroke and appendicitis and all sorts of things, all of which is not easily diagnosed from telemedicine. So I think one of the one of the interesting um, questions that we should ask out of this is what are we going to what do we know about the quality of diagnostics available to us from telemedicine on the back end of this? Because I think between you know the answer to that question and then how reimbursements are going to change or if reimbursements are going to change, and then the regulations around patient privacy that allow telehealth that have been lifted to allow, you know, for instance, a FaceTime visit with your doctor to count as a check-in um, are all going to really dictate what the demand for wh whether or not telehealth has any impact on demand for space or the kinds of space in a physician office or whether it gets aggregated together in some other telehealth hub. I think, I think we've got to have some better data around how it works and how it is um, assessed using really rigorous scientific measures um, in order to help guide those decisions for, for patients. I do think we might see the pace of adoption accelerate, but I think we're still a long way out before we see it have really dramatic impact on the footprint. Those are great points, Floyd. This is Sean. Um, I, I agree with that completely. It also harkens back um, it struck a chord when you had talked about we've all read the same things in terms of heart attacks or cancer screenings and, and folks not wanting to go into the healthcare environment and, and what could the impacts of that do. Um, so I just tie that back to your earlier comment in our discussion, which is really getting the confidence uh, of the consumer, of that right. patient, to be comfortable coming back to the hospital and or the medical office building. And, and we as real estate um, advisors and providers need to make sure that that space is designed uh, in the correct manner so that they do feel safe, if you have the social distancing, we have the wayfinding, um, and all those types of things. And even to your point, the fact that even, even the air quality, such that it smells clean, looks clean, um, are all going right. to be very important because right. that's going to start getting us back to the road. And, and it, it may be that, you know, it's not an all or nothing solution. I was talking to a colleague yesterday who um, his partner is a diabetic, and, you know, there's a lot of concern around his underlying health conditions. That's also a condition that can be safely monitored remotely, and there are lots of tools in place already to do that. But for other conditions, that may not be so easy. <laughs> the, other, the other comment I would share on telehealth is I was thinking about this because um, uh, you know, I used, to, I used to work in higher education, and I remember when online learning was first launched that everyone, you know, the naysayers came along and declared that, you know, professors were going to go away and university classroom footprints were going to shrink, and there were all of these very dire prognostications about that. And now, of course, that many of us who have small children are at home um, suffering through online learning or grateful to have it or whatever your perspective is. Um, you know, I don't know very many parents, teachers, or even students for that matter, who are not going to run back to a physical classroom the very minute that they are able to do the so. I mean, even my son, who has pretty good setup for online learning, told me this morning, he's like, Mom, I'm so sick of this. I actually cannot wait to go back to school. And so I have a feeling that for some, generationally speaking, I think patients may also feel the same way, that they might just appreciate some of the social aspects of being seen physically and in person by a doctor. I'm with you there, Lori. This is Perry. I'd love to just 
interact with another human that's not my family right now. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Like even if I even if I have a hangnail, I might just go ahead and make an appointment because, you know, why not? And the excuse to see another per human being have a conversation. Right. That's right. Just, just an in-person visit would be great. Yeah. No, I, I agree with that. I, I think, you know, just like any, any other major um, event that happens, we, we learn from, we take the best practices and we adapt and going forward, but, you know, things are going to be, you know, 90% 90, 90 the way they were uh, beforehand. We just, you know, take the best practices and move, move forward. I think that's what it's going to look a lot like going forward. It sounds like it may be a little early to see health systems reconfigure or pare down uh, brick and mortar spaces in light of the fact that we all are craving social interaction. Um, but can someone speak to bottom line considerations that executives should think about uh, as we progress through into the new normal if brick and mortar spaces are a real necessity? Or to what extent? brick and mortar spaces should remain. Like I'm I'm a believer in brick and mortar um, and I don't think that's wishful thinking on my part. I just think there's an awful lot of medicine um, that must be done in person and especially for specific patient populations who are um, you know, chronic disease or complex comorbidities, um, caring for them is really, really challenging and it requires a lot of, um, a lot of diagnostics that cannot best be done remotely. It also requires, I think, you know, medicine in recent years has moved much more to teaming to treat some of those chronic conditions and that requires interaction among care providers as well as with the patient. So, it just, I just can't imagine really even in my wildest dreams um, having technological tools really quickly that would supplant or replace as fully what is accomplishable in an in-person visit. This is Sean. I would I would agree totally, Lori. I think from you know bricks and mortar will always will always have a place. Um, and again, the makeup and what that looks like may change, may shrink, may grow. Uh, but I think it is important for some of the reasons you mentioned. And also, I mean, healthcare is at its nature, you know, high touch. I mean, uh, as you guys, were, as you and Perry were talking about with your kids and schooling and wanting to see other people, uh, it's the same thing and even even uh, accelerated when we talk to our physicians. You have a physician you can, you can get personally interactive with, you have an emotional connection with, um, doing that over the phone or via telehealth uh, or the other setting, uh, you know, technological settings is not the same as seeing your physician. So why it will change and most likely will change. Um, and we don't, none of us have the crystal ball, but we're beginning to, to work through that. I think, um, you know, the bricks and mortar component will, will continue for, for the, my lifetime for sure. Well, and if I think back to higher ed and what happened after classrooms, after we equipped classrooms with computers and facilitated some version of online learning, Almost everything became blended. It did, one did not supplant the other. They started to work in tandem. And in fact, many universities' footprints grew. They didn't shrink. And so it'll be interesting um, to sort of keep those two situations in tandem 
um, and, and look to other industries to see how widespread technological adoption is going to work. I mean, one of the challenges that we're seeing now with online learning across an awful lot of the United States is that a, a, re a remarkable number of people do not have reliable internet access. And I think, you know, widespread adoption of, te of telehealth really requires that. Um, and, you know, that, that conversation really needs to proceed because some of the places now that are most susceptible to COVID and are experiencing really significant issues related to dealing with the pandemic are in rural markets where there's, you know, limited hospitals, limited numbers of ICU beds, limited numbers of clinicians to care for these people. So, you know, just at the very pragmatic brass tax terms, we can't adopt telehealth widely unless we're sure everybody has access to, to the internet and to technology that can facilitate it. Yeah, I would agree. And as, as, as Perry had mentioned earlier, you know, we, we all, we as a, as, a, as a society here in the United States in particular, uh, you know, we, we adapt, we learn from things that have happened, um, and not just as it relates to this pandemic, um, and ways to go going forward, we'll be able to address this in different ways. But to your point, Lori, I think being able to take best practices from other industries uh, who have dealt with things which are similar, different, but yet similar in ways that we can we can leverage that and be more efficient as we roll this out. I, I would agree with that. Those are great points. Thank you. We've been receiving questions throughout uh, on the webinar Q&A platform as well, and we have one that I will pose to the group uh, from one of our participants that states, Excuse me. We're seeing conversations regarding future design and build of senior housing in light of the potential paradigm shift in the delivery of care. Can anyone offer any early insight on the potential evolution of senior care? So I'd be happy to kind of give my observations. This is John. So we do a lot of evaluations of senior housing facilities. You know, the full spectrum from independent living to assisted living to memory care to, to nursing homes. And um, you know, we've all certainly heard the tragic stories of, of what's been happening in some of the nursing homes as well as some of the assisted living. And, and there definitely are some concerns that we're hearing that, that this may cause a big paradigm shift in, in the how those types of facilities are designed. You know, do, do people really want to go to a facility that has 90 people all congregated in close quarters like that where something like corona can be so easily transmitted from person to person. Um, and, you know, typically the, the move to a facility like that is more of a, is a health, driven by a healthcare need rather than a lifestyle choice. So they, they have to get the care from somewhere. Um, and, and so the, the, the most logical alternative is, is home health. And so you, you start to wonder, is there, is there, or see, is there going to be more demand for home health as opposed to people moving into these facilities, or are they going to have to change the design of these facilities to be able to um, sort of uh, protect people who live there and give them the sense of security that they're not going to catch uh, the next communicable disease that comes around. Um, you know, it's still very early in, in the discussions about, about that, but I, it's definitely some serious concerns that we're hearing within the industry about that. That's an interesting contemplation, John, regarding the shift to home health um, and raises questions regarding, uh, again, cost absorption. If the transition to home health 
becomes the new norm, what will that look like? <clears throat> Another question that we've received shifting gears is in regard to construction. Have we been seeing construction delays as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic? And if so, how are parties dealing with those? Uh, this is Sean. I can weigh in a little bit on that one. So I think um, I was just on a call actually just yesterday, I guess that was with a, with a large group of investor developers and we were kind of touching on some of those similar topics. So I think from the construction side, again, it varies, it varies state by state. Uh, here in Chicago, construction is, is continuing. Um, you see crews out there in other states, it's prohibited and it's not in steam, not non-essential and not moving forward. But I think in all instances, um, everything has been delayed because even on the construction side, um, you get to that, they still are trying to practice social distancing. So obviously that just delays and makes things slower. You also have a supply issue in terms of when you can get the supplies, how those come in. Um, so we are seeing construction, at least on our side, seeing construction continue. Um, the developers, in fact, on that call, uh, I was so somewhat surprised at uh, how rosy their outlook was relative to projects they had in the pipeline. Most of those are, are moving forward, albeit with delays, whether it be on the construction side, as we talked about, um, or the other piece is just getting through the governmental regulatory process, um, getting permits done, uh, COs when you get to the back end, et cetera. But surprisingly also, um, from a leasing perspective, they were still having uh, success uh, in leasing those those projects. Again, those are further out in the future. Um, so folks I think are looking beyond, you know, kind of the current situation and that there might be some positives. So I think that, that speaks well for the industry as well. Sean, this is Perry, same thing out here in Denver. It's uh, surprisingly on track for construction, um, even so much so I've got, you know, we're doing a, I've got a client, a new, new medical office building and obviously they've been delayed, uh, not being able to address lease comments, but um, hey, construction's still on schedule, so we can get going and we don't want to miss our date. So um, yeah, that's one of been the, the, the nice surprises is there really hasn't been much of a delay and um, we are starting to, you know, construction costs were at all time high out here in Denver months ago and now they've kind of come back down to earth too. So that's that's also good for our, um, our clients. It's interesting yeah, you mentioned Perry, that. We saw the same yeah. thing. Yeah, we, saw, we also saw on our side just on a couple of small projects delays, but construction costs overall, um, even for TI, were going down a little bit. So that was a positive. I was going to Thanks, kind of weigh everyone. in on the same thing. It was also brought up in terms of the construction costs that those those had escalated kind of in the short term, but they're seeing those come down. And I actually had one individual say that they, they foresee the, the construction costs uh, overall could come down another 15% here in fairly short order. We have another question, uh, jumping back to reopening considerations. What are the panel's thoughts on multi-tenant medical office buildings and whether a landlord should be responsible for testing at the main entrance of the building or if testing obligations should fall to the tenant for their own individual suite. Um, this is Lori. I've had a thousand conversations about this matter, <laughs> so <laughs> I will weigh in with what I, with what I think is prudent. Um, you know, with the caveat that I'm not an epidemiologist. So here's what I think, right? It depends on who the landlord is. If the landlord is a health system and they have specific directives and many of the tenants in there are either aligned or affiliated physicians, then I think they are likely going to direct how and where and when testing is going to occur. 
in the early days of the pandemic, we had we experienced an awful lot of instances where tenants um, took it upon themselves to screen to temperature screen patients, and some of them were doing it in the common areas of the building, and they were doing it you know suite by suite. Um, that is not only problematic because the common area of the building is not theirs to use for that. It also meant duplication of effort. So in many cases, um, you know, we worked collaboratively with the tenants, with the landlord to raise the question, can this more safely be done prior to entering the building, right? Because the goal is to reduce the, to, to just reduce risk and reduce exposure for everybody entering the space. And then also to reduce the, the need for interim cleaning so that you can deep clean all of those areas maybe once a day or maybe two times a day if you need to, but try to manage how much um, cleaning has to occur all the time. And so I think um, to the extent that tenants and landlords can come to some sort of agreement that screening will happen outside of the building in a secured location and that all parties can contribute to that if all parties can benefit from it. Some of, some of, in some of the cases that we had, the tenants who had um, staff available rotated staff to perform the temperature screenings. And so that became very efficient and very cost effective. And it allowed, it allowed for an orderly um, path of ingress into the building. So patients were notified, all of the tenants could notify their patients, hey, this is going to happen. Before you enter, you're gonna to have to go through a temperature screening. And if somebody had a high temperature, then they were directed um, to another entryway or were directed for additional screening um, to determine whether or not they should proceed with their appointment or not. I mean, temperature screenings overall are murky. You can have a fever for lots of reasons, one of which might be COVID and lots of other reasons might not be. So I think um, part of the goal there is just, you know, the whole purpose of temperature screening is to reduce risk for everyone. And the idea of having tenants do it individually in their suites just um, gives me pause. Thanks for your thoughts on that, Lori. Uh, I realize that we are at time, everyone, and I want to be sensitive to everyone's schedules. I'd like to say thank you to Lori, John, Perry, and Sean for our conversation today. I'd also like to let everyone know that Hall Render publishes an e-newsletter each month called the Healthcare Real Estate Advisor and also a podcast. If you'd like to receive this newsletter, please email realestate at hallrender.com. Thank you again to everyone for joining the webinar and please feel free to reach out to me directly or any of our panelists with any follow-up questions. Thank you.